Those mid-level leaders who are invested in and who are engaged and who have the ability to have a high impact versus those who aren't. And it's less about how the individual feels, and there's a big deal going on there, but it's actually more about the risk it puts the organisation at. There is loads of anecdotal and researched evidence that proves that when your mid-level leaders are on point, your transformations succeed. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high-performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today I'm thrilled to introduce a truly exceptional guest who has spent over 25 years shaping talent, transforming careers, and redefining what it means to be a leader. Our guest is a AHRI talent strategy and Golden Cool Award winner and the best-selling author of Impact and the architect of Level Up, the only program of its kind dedicated to the B-suite leaders. Her impressive portfolio boasts collaborations with industry giants like LinkedIn, uh, Indeed, the City of Melbourne and Concentrix, among many others. She is a graduate of the prestigious University of Birmingham with a Bachelor of Arts in Ancient and Medieval History. Now, I'm fascinated in that. And her works have graced the pages of esteemed publications like Harvard Business Review, Forbes, The Australian, News Limited, CEO World, and HR Leader. Please join me in welcoming today's guest, the incomparable champion of talent development and leadership, Rebecca Horton. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. What an amazing introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, It's good as well. It's well-deserved. Now, I'm curious, where did it all start for you? Where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were running around the playgrounds? Oh, many, many. Um, So I'm a Londoner by birth. I come from a very big West London family and uh, came to Australia via Africa and the Middle East and Europe. So it was inevitable that I was going to end up living my life not where I was born. Um, For me, some, some interesting interests in my life, I think. So one has always been culture and the differences between peoples. I've always had a fascination uh, about, around group behavior. So part of my delving into history, and I'm kind of embarrassed that you picked that one up, ancient and medieval history, uh, was not to 
pick a job in academia or a library, because I think that's all you can be after studying those two things, but was really to go deep on why humans behave in large groups the way that they do. So I think when I look now at at where my obsession is, which is with mid-level leaders who I call the B-suite, I think that's really where it came from, was this curiosity about how groups behave and how leaders influence groups to behave in certain ways. I just, I just thought maybe you misspelled medieval and it became mid-level. So that's where the fascination <laughs> came in. Yeah, you got me. That was it. <laughs> uh, obviously, living in different, not, not only different countries, but different continents as well, where the cultures are quite varied. I mean, I, I, I think it's quite always quite funny when people say, oh, they're Asian. Well, no, there's so many different countries in Asia and the cultures are completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, but having that exposure in your formative years where you are able to uh, experience different ways of being and living and growing. What did that teach you about being a human being first? Mm. I think one of the things that I really noticed having had that background is to start to spot the common, the commonalities to really look for the, the elements of being a human being a leader, where there is common ground that that transcends continents and cultures, and then to really prize and appreciate the differences as well. You know, they become the delightful nuances and the, the colour and the flavour of your relationships, but actually your common ground is far, far deeper than it might appear on the surface. And that's always been a real fascination for me as I've travelled around the world. And for you, what are those big commonalities that you see uh, no matter where we are in the world? Mm. Well, in my work with leaders in particular, you know, that's where I've really started to codify what I think. But one of the things that almost amuses me is that it doesn't matter what language you speak and what country you come from. As a leader, confidence is your secret Achilles heel. Mm. Um, As a leader, influence is your greatest frustration, being able to get people to do what you want. Um, ultimately. Uh, And as a leader, there are conflicting priorities on you, particularly when you're leading from the middle of an organisation. And it doesn't matter whether that's in India, whether that's in Tanzania, whether that's in New York, those conversations are incredibly powerful at bringing leaders together and finding that common ground. Now, I, I'm curious on this confidence piece, uh, being an Achilles heel, are you talking more internal confidence or the confidence you project to other people being the Achilles mm. heel or both? Good pickup. Well, they're two very, very different things, aren't they? Mm. What we think of ourselves on the inside is often the complete opposite of what we project on the outside. In fact, some of the people who come across as the most brash and the most outwardly confident are often the ones who have the greatest self-esteem issues and the greatest second guessing of themselves on the inside. Um, so the confidence that that I talk about is some is the work that we do in the confidence space is really around how do you bring those two things together and create that link so that you're not projecting in a way that's not true to what's going on on the inside, but how do you regulate what's going on on the inside so that you don't um, project to the world the basket case that you think you are internally. <laughs> Interesting, because I remember, and, and I've shared this a few times now, but when I used to race, uh, a lot of the competitors used to say, I hate you. And I'm like, well, why do you hate me? And they said, look, it doesn't matter what day you're having. You always project the same level of confidence 
and we don't know whether you're going to have a good day or bad day where you're feeling tired or you're feeling amazing. We have no idea. And I said, good. I was able to <laughs> regulate exactly what I wanted there, no matter what I was feeling inside. Um, but I think that's a good pickup. You know, a lot of the times, you know, we can project really good confidence, which is helpful in space uh, in, in what we do as leaders. You, you need to be able to project confidence at the right times. Um, but it doesn't, you know, and I think that's irrelevant of what's happening internally. Obviously, if we can get them aligned, then you can take it to a whole nother place. Um, but you can get by as long as you can project confidence, then you've got to do that inner work, which is the harder stuff, um, that, that quite often requires help. It's hard to do by yourself, I think. Yes, it is. It is. I think we don't believe our own hype half the time. And that's what the good old inner voice is for. But, um, but yes, I think I think once you've learned to regulate your inner confidence and build that sense of self-awareness, appreciation for the value that you bring, that self-assurance internally, you find that your need to fake it till you make it kind of dissipates to quite a deep extent. And what's really, really interesting is that people can smell when you're faking your confidence. Mm. The rise of authentic leadership has been you know, so popular because... People kind of always knew that there wasn't something wasn't quite right. You weren't perhaps quite as confident as you made out. And that's that's completely normal. You know, we're incredibly intuitive creatures, and we really know at an animalistic level when something's missing or something's off kilter. Mm. And confidence is one of those elements that people can really smell in a leader and they know when something's not right. So actually bringing up your inner confidence to match your outer confidence is a crucial piece of work that lasts your whole career, mm. your whole life, actually. I find that fascinating, actually. And I wouldn't mind going a little bit deeper here because projecting confidence can be done without words. All I need to do is breathe well and have good posture, mm -hmm. right? And I can generally, I can... Uh, adjust the confidence, like the perception of confidence in other people. Will they still smell whether I'm struggling internally or not? I don't know. That's interesting. And it's a good question. I'm, it, it's made me think I want to go deeper now into some study around this a bit further because we talk about the house of confidence and we, we look at kind of foundational confidence and then things like situational confidence, which is more around the competence in a certain area or um, preparation and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But I but I am curious because I don't think any of my competitors could ever smell when I was struggling internally. Mm. I was able just to project the same level of confidence and, you know, it, it's like a charisma in a way. Like if, it'd be interesting to talk to someone like uh, Bill Clinton, right, so who's quite renowned in being charismatic. So in a way that projects good confidence in a way, because I'm sure there'd be many times where he wasn't feeling super confident on the inside. I can think of one interview in particular. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but then, but then you get someone like, and this, and this is, uh, you get someone like a Barack Obama, right? So looks confident, but doesn't have the charisma. So he's got, uh, doesn't have the quite the, the approachableness of someone like a Bill Clinton in a way. So Bill Clinton's a little bit more warmer, a bit more approachable. You get someone like Barack Obama, who's who still exuberates confidence, but doesn't have that magnetic attractability as much as what someone like Bill Clinton did. And so balancing 
confidence in there, it'd be interesting to kind of have a good conversation with both of them to see this is what you are portraying, like both high levels of confidence, but in two different ways, but what was going on internally. I think it'd be a fascinating conversation. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your, to your point about being able to regulate the physical manifestation of your confidence, you know, you're a highly trained athlete. So, of course, you have immense control over all of the physical regulations that you need mm. to perform the level that you have done. Most of us don't have that. So for many of us, the little flutter in the breathing when we speak is a dead giveaway. Yeah. The slight color in our neck when something's uncomfortable, the little pull of the ear that we don't even know that we're doing. All of these things are huge giveaways mm. that you would otherwise think was a perfectly poised executive leader, mm. but then spot these little tiny clues. And that's even on a screen. So imagine when you're actually working with them side by side once or twice a week, you get to know an awful lot more and you get to really feel the sensation of their energy and you'll know whether they're in a, a really good, calm, relaxed place or whether they're hyped up for some reason. And then you'll start adding adding the information together to come up with your own conclusion about what's really going on and therein lies the danger. Yeah, and that's that's interesting too because there's a lot of talk around like, reading other people's body language. All right, if I look this way, it means this. If I pull my ear, it means this. Well, not really. It, it, the only thing you need to look for, and I think you made a good point here, is that if you're with them regularly, you get to notice things. And that is the subtle shifts in change. Because I might fold my arms because I'm cold and I'm, and I'm comfortable or, or uncomfortable. It doesn't mean I'm not interested or disinterested. However, the perception on someone else could be quite different. And so that ability to understand your physiology and your body language is super important for a leader because you may have incongruency between what you are trying to convey either verbally or non-verbally versus what they're actually seeing. Mm. And, and, I, and I feel a lot of leaders need to spend and even managers need to spend a lot more time being conscious of this and actually uh, having a chance to have a look at what they're doing because it it can make or break a lot of deals. It can make and break a lot of relationships based purely on what you're unaware of what's happening, what's going on. Oh, it absolutely does, Craig. It's quite amazing. Did you know that only 7% of communication is made up of the spoken word, the words we use? Everything else is body language, tone, pace. It really is quite remarkable how very much more clues we pick up as humans with these phenomenal, you know, um, these these eyes of ours that are focused on tiny movements. You know, we are predators ultimately. Mm. So we we spot things that eagles spot, you know, we're, we're remarkably astute when it comes to that. So it, it is quite fascinating how much more we pick up than we would ever give ourselves credit for. Yeah, I do find that interesting too because there are a number of different researchers out there. Uh, I still think for anyone listening that don't discount what you're saying because it, you know, it mm -hmm. might be considered 7% um, because <laughs> that does have a huge impact on your influence and the, the credibility you have uh, when you're dealing with someone. So yeah, please don't yeah, take that as literally, I only need to focus on 7% of what I do on the words I say. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes, certainly don't do that. Every part of it matters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is, yeah, so it's so really insightful. Um, 
Now, I, I like, I'm just going to stick a little bit in this moving between different countries. So we talked about, you know, what are the commonalities, but what were some of the things that you picked up in different countries that you were like, that would be fascinating to see that in other countries or other cultures or see that embedded more often in leadership? Mm. That's a really good question. So for me, I think the stark differences are the countries where you are a community first leader and the countries where you're an individual first leader. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, the, the key difference is between leadership as a title and a status versus leadership as a vocation and a service. Mm. Um, so for me, I think um, communities like you know, many communities in Asia, many communities in Africa, uh, and then the individualized leadership, which tends to be more the classic um, UK, America, and most of the European countries. Uh, yeah, we, re we really do see a difference in intrinsic motivation and perspective in terms of where those leaders are coming from. And often that is the core of why they don't necessarily understand each other when they're trying to collaborate around the world. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I think that's a real good approach. Is it from more of a service point of view or is it more of yeah an individual? I, I really like that approach. I think that's an interesting thing to observe. As the world becomes more globalized, as we see more interactions um, between companies, between workers. Uh, how, how are leaders changing in that sense, right? How, how do we, how as leaders do we need to think differently than maybe what we've had to before in regards to knowing that we're going to have different cultures in there, that we, we need to be more inclusive, that people aren't just going to follow anymore. Um, what are you seeing in that space right now? Mm. I'm seeing a real rise in the interest in what makes people tick. So, you know, historically, I think leaders were very, very focused on the work and what's becoming more normal as we as we globalise, but also as we personalise, you know, the workplace has become so much more personalised, even within country and within culture. One of the things that is beginning to become evidently important for leaders is that they do need to understand how the brain works and what why people are going to respond to certain things in different ways. And whatever they can do to predict that and to accommodate that is going to make for a more psychologically secure environment, but also a more harmony, a harmonious environment where people can still be individual and have individual agency mm. and needs and wants, but still work together and pull together towards a key goal. Now, historically, we really focused on the goal and less on the behaviors and the people. And I think we're really seeing a swing around now to better understanding, I think, the role of influence and the role of reaction and the role of emotion in creating followership. We have a, an interesting kind of space at the moment where everyone's like, you need to be an inclusive leader, but you need to be a very diverse leader. So the, the intersection sometimes doesn't always work. You know, when you bring a lot of diverse ideas, thinking, ways of being, um, backgrounds, etc., and you try and bring them into a space where you want everyone to feel psychologically safe, have the permission to to feel like they're included and be included. Are some some leaders trying to put too much pressure on themselves to be 100% inclusive when it's impossible? <laughs> I think some people are certainly falling into the trap of leadership by committee, but that's not necessarily new. Mm. Um, 
it, it is a tricky environment. And I think when we step when we step back from the outward symbols of diversity and we start focusing on the internal common grounds of inclusion, we actually create by nature a better integrated experience for people where they can be as different as they choose to be, but you're focusing on the common elements mm. so that you have a thread of connection because that's what ultimately everybody craves is a sense of connection, but we also crave a sense of individuality. So balancing that tightrope for leaders is incredibly difficult. And my advice has always been focus on the common ground because you'll never accommodate all of the individualities in the world. We shouldn't try to, you know, I hope that there's yeah. an endless, infinite, um, you know, there, there are options out there that will never end and will always surprise and delight us. So the common threads are the ones that become easier to find and to hold people to. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's when I was at school, debating was a was a, a hot you know, it was it was a thing that everyone did right you you did a debating competition or you did debating in in one of your classes etc but i find still that a lot of companies find it difficult to create spaces where healthy debate can occur as they try and balance this whole diversity inclusion focus um, and, and when i talk about diversity inclusion i'm not talking about jace uh, race gender um, age, etc. I'm talking about being fully inclusive or, or, you know, being including people, um, into conversations or whatever it may be and diverse thinking and different backgrounds of growing up, you know, whether it be poor or a wealthy or not, like there, there's so many different aspects to this. Um, yeah. So, so how can companies bring in more of that healthy, healthy debate where, we don't have to, th we don't feel like we have to create peace all the time. Yes, really, really interesting. Um, I think your, your comment about learning to debate at school is an art form that we are somewhat losing. So a lot of the time people don't differentiate between debate and argument. Mm. And in fact, people haven't been trained to keep it in the debate space and not let it fall over into the argument space. And you've seen it happen a thousand times, you know, at work where the, you know, the, the obvious tells are it's become a win-lose conversation. Mm. Somebody needs to be right. And they keep insisting that you're not seeing my point of view. And actually, perhaps somebody has, but they've disregarded it. Um, and we're moving into a space where it's becoming personal and it's becoming aggravated. And when we walk away at that point, what we realize is that no one's ever going to win the logic has left the room. And now this has actually become something quite emotional, which is difficult to back away from and can cause some real ruptures in the workplace and certainly in relationships at work and at home. Um, so I think the lost art of debating is one that we should, we should campaign to bring back, Craig. I think we need to remember how to have a good argument as opposed to a bad argument. And I don't think very many people have a structure or a framework or any idea what the difference might look like. Mm. No, it's great. It's an area we touch on a little bit, um, but it's got me thinking we need to go a bit deeper with as well when we're working with people. The The importance of this, I think, is being able to separate the person from the problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times we subconsciously do things that create it about the, or like they make it about the person rather than the problem. But even just the words that we use, you know, if we start a sentence like, you did this or you did that, 
or you think this way, then well, that becomes a personal attack straight away. So how can you just even shift simple vocabulary so you don't uh, charge up that part of the brain that goes, hey, you know what, I want to fight. Let's, uh, let's bring on that argument. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And look, I, th I think a lot of us, well, I say a lot of us, I think those, those of us who have some maturity about us recognize that name calling is not okay. Um, if you ever troll around on social media, you'll find out that there are millions of people out there who think name calling is okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's not. But the more mature or sophisticated person that is having an argument might fall into something that actually is name calling, but pretends not to be, which is called ad hominem. Mm. So that's really where you question the veracity of the individual. So I might say, well, Craig, you would say that because you're a middle-aged white man. Now that might be factually correct, but it's somewhat derogatory and it's designed to mm. belittle the source of the information to belittle, therefore, the value of the information that's coming from the person that you've just derogated. So quite an interesting one to watch out for, and I do see that happen quite often. It is such a judgment-laden statement, mm. and I think a real number one to watch out for. If you can eradicate that in the way your teams argue, you'll be going a long way to avoiding it getting personal. It's made me think about you know a really important topic around ensuring that we get... Um, that we have more gender balance in roles, more gender uh, like in and diversity across uh, certain industries as well, which I think like it's super important, like because of things that have happened in the past that may have prevented uh, people from having opportunities, you know, mm. and forcing them into minority type situations. And so mm. we do need to combat that. But we also, it's a challenging space because if you push it too hard, right, for instance, you fall into that space. Oh, you're a, you're a middle, middle-aged white guy. Um, sorry, we don't have any leadership roles for you because we need to, we need to have, be more diverse. That, that poor person's now been totally excluded and feels like, well, why am I wasting my time even being a leader or, or even in this industry or even in this company? So it's a very fine balance as you've got to, you know, with social change, because this is what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a social change um, that's super important, but how do we balance that along the way? We don't alienate people as well from who might be really good at what they do, but because of a, uh, a stigma, I suppose, in a way, or, a, or because of what's happened in the past, they now might be restricted on what opportunities they get in the future. Hmm. Well, I mean, you're touching on one of the world's wicked problems there, Craig. There is no perfect answer no. for this. We've found it by now, right? People who spend their entire lives looking at this problem still haven't found the answer. Um, I think I like to think of it as a pendulum. You know, it has for a millennia been very much swung in the favour of the, <laughs> sorry, Craig, white middle-aged man. <laughs> um, um, the, you know, the pendulum has moved now to, you know, being in the favour of the white middle-aged woman. Um, and is moving slowly to the other side. It's inevitable in the end that the pendulum will come to rest perfectly in the middle. That's how gravity works. But it won't do that before it's swung wildly from side to side to side. And it will be the retaliation of those who feel that they've lost something who will make it swing in the other direction. Mm. So, you know, the the rise, um, you know, the, the the rise, I think, of social equity are really those who are saying for too many hundreds of years, we've been on the wrong side of this pendulum and it's time for the pendulum to swing our way. 
And as a historian, I have to take the long range view and go, well, that's actually fair. You know, it disadvantages me, I suppose, but that's actually just fair and factual. And then, of course, what will happen is that those who feel that they've lost out, who will be those who have had the advantage for so long, will say, well, hang on, what about me? I've lost all this, la, 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 la. Mm. The pendulum will swing the other way. It's going to take an awfully long time Mm. for this pendulum to settle in the middle. And I think it will take longer for as long as those who have fear losing to those who have not, instead of recognise that there's more than enough of everything to go around and we can share rather than lose. So I think trying to rid ourselves of this binary win-lose mentality, which is a really prevalent one in the West, Western mindset in particular, uh, is one that will really help that pendulum to settle faster. Uh, But I'm not seeing it happening at the moment. Yeah. And it happens with any sort of social change. You know, we're seeing this in regards to like pronouns, for instance, too. It, it's a big push that we have to do it this way. Like, it, and they have to, to, to get recognized and things like that. And that happens in every sort of social change we've ever seen in the world. Um, and as you say, it's like a pendulum. It'll swing, bounces. You'll find the common ground at the right, you know, it'll balance out at some point. Can we mm-hmm. accelerate it? Sometimes it'd be, ni- it'd be nice to accelerate some of these things and just go, hey, look, bang let's just make it happen now but it's there's so many variables that come into play Um, yes and humans don't have a great track record of adapting to change as quickly as we'd like to intellectually we're remarkable at adapting full stop because there is no reason on god's green earth that we should still be here given that we don't have claws or fur or anything apart from our brain but that brain is still not as quick as we like to think it is so we adopt that kind of change Quite slowly, we resist it. We don't love change. We're not change junkies. We'd love to kid ourselves that we are, but we're not. So a lot of this is is built-in resistance. And I think the faster that we can crack the code on that, the easier some of these social changes will become. Hmm. So you've spent a lot of your career in the space of talent and development and, and people and how can we improve them? I'm curious if we go back to say you're in your in more of your high school formative type years, were you more of a leader or a follower during that time? Oh, great question. I, definitely more of a leader in terms of perception and behavior. Preference, though, would probably be a follower. I just had a problem with the caliber of those available to follow. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds terrible. That sounds terrible. But it's true. It's true. I'm actually very, very happy to follow. Um, I recently went on a massive hike and was definitely not the leader of our group and so happy and relaxed to play a useful second fiddle. Um, and have always been very happy and relaxed to be that useful second fiddle. But I don't love being a second fiddle to things that are not right. You know what I mean? Mm. I love it. That's good. And so, you know, talent development doesn't happen on our own. So was there was there anyone that kind of stands out early in your career that had a profound effect on you um, as a mentor or you didn't have to be a like a, a designated mentor, but just someone that had quite a big influence on you in your career and who you've become? Gosh, I've had lots, right? So I've, I've been very, very lucky. I really pay attention to leaders that stand out for both good and bad reasons. And I do try very hard to learn from what I like and what I don't like. 
So I can recall um, one leader in particular who was absolutely all the things that I definitely don't want to be. And I'm delighted to report that I have none of those traits now that I've grown up. Um, and I think equally, there are a couple of leaders in my career who really changed the trajectory of where I was going and, and who I was going to be as a leader when I when I grew up. And some of them were when I was very, very junior in my career and their, their illustration of what I could be and why that was better still stay true with me today. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And, and so what, what drew you into uh, kind of a career in, in kind of the, I don't like the word human resources. We were talking about this yesterday. I don't like word resources. Um, I don't even like human capital either. Like I think that's such a bad name, capital. You're not capital, you're humans. All right, so what drew you into the world of human behavior and performance? <laughs> Landed it. Good, good. We have a new label. I agree with everything you've just said. Um, so for me, it was the study that I did in ancient medieval history without a shadow of a doubt. So for me, the fascination in uh, why people behave the way they behave, because we're a bit weird, you know? Humans do things that are quite unexpected, often utterly illogical, and yet we have such depth and range to us. I find the human a fascinating topic. So for me, it was always inevitable I was gonna do something that had people at the heart of it. And in fact, my, my very first career choices were nothing to do with the people side of business. We're actually all about the business side of business. Mm. But I found myself drawn to the people stuff more and more and more. And leadership is, is really where that connection happens. You know, the minute you become a mid-level or senior leader, your job is people. Yeah. Your job might, might be, you know, manager of accounting. So you might think your job is accounting. It's not, it's people. The accountants on your team do the accounting. Um, so for me, I think as soon as I hit that level of leadership, I was like, oh, this was where I was meant to be. This is where the people thing really happens. Everything else is what you read in a book. And you would have seen over that time, the shift in, we have someone from HR to now we have different areas. You know, we're looking after talent development. We're looking after people and culture, um, well-being, the advent of that it's been quite profound over the last sort of decade, maybe two, where we're starting to see that shift and understanding that it's more than just shuffling papers to hire and fire someone to, we actually really need to look after our people and they are a priority in the business. Watching that shift over time, what do you think has been the most, had the most profound impact on the employee experience? Oh, that's a really good question. To pick one area. Look, I think at a strategic level, it's probably organizational development. You know, that, that's really elevated itself into the, the realm of people strategy. So everything connected to people strategy, whether it's culture, performance, structure, whatever it is, that sits in that OD bucket, but that's quite a broad bucket. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I look now at learning and development, the profession of learning and development, which is probably one of the older splinters, if you like, of good old fashioned personnel. Um, and they have gone through quite the revolution and are doing it again. Mm. You know, right now, an L&D professional is switching up everything they ever knew about learning and development and applying a whole new frame to how we engage our people to learn 
uh, you know, the speed of it, the purpose of it, the style of it. So I think in a funny way, it's probably the most unloved area. You know, L&D doesn't get a lot of glory and attention, but actually without it, I'm not sure that our workforces would be achieving the things that they would. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's really interesting. I mean, gone are the days where it was like, oh, we'll, we'll spend a couple of grand, you go away to a conference, um, go and have a lot of fun. Um, to, to now, we've kind of gone through a phase where uh, let's just put a whole lot of learning modules online and you can do it at self-paced, uh, which I think people are realizing is not really having that much benefit because unless you are a dedicated learner who's fascinated by that, that space on your own to learn, most people aren't even watching them or even um, you know, learning from them in a way. So we're seeing that shift back to more of the human interaction again. And, and I and I think this is going to be a big shift over the next few years where, I mean, right now we're seeing a lot of learning and de development budgets being kind of squashed a little bit while we deal with the recession in a way. But I think as we come out of that and people start to see more economic growth in the organization stability, that we will see a lot more investment into the human uh, delivery of learning and development where we get feedback, we get all the things that you can't get from, you know, going online and watching a video or, or reading a document. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that that human element and that personalized element is really, really important. And what we're seeing is a real rise in self-assessment. We're really seeing a rise in self-diagnostic and auditing because you're quite right. When we put up, you know, a, a thousand different modules that people could pick, people pick nothing yeah. because they're not learning and development experts. They don't know how to craft a package that fits where they are right now. So building in those kind of self-catering diagnostics and being able to define a learning program that is completely unique to you, your needs, your interests, and where you are right now in your career or, your, or where you'd like to be in your career actually gives learners so much more intrinsic motivation. The what's in it for me is off the chart because they've designed it for themselves, but they need help to do that. Mm. You know, even I would to, to say to somebody, go ahead and just you know, help yourself to a thousand things. It's just an overwhelming, unrealistic smorgasbord mm. that means that you don't touch any of it at all. Yeah, I think the ability where we can do a lot more of the blended learning and uh, bring people together where they've got someone who's holding them accountable along the way, the, that feedback, the accountability is key. And I think any organization that, as you mentioned, puts up the thousand uh, item smorgasbord learning management systems are not really going to get much from it apart from saving a bit of money on the budget bottom line and being congratulated by the the ceo for not overspending this year um, you're yeah. so right <laughs> so so moving a little bit in here you've done quite a lot of work around what you talk about as b-suite and and obviously we've heard that term a little bit it's starting to grow in fruition a little bit we're hearing a little bit more often uh, but what is the B-suite and, and why has it become a fascination for you uh, when you could look at the entire workforce? Why have you chosen the B-suite? Great question, Craig. So for me, the B-suite leader is a mid-level leader with outsized impact. And what I've seen happen for so many years, and really it's been like 35 years, 
is that these leaders have been maligned. You know, they are the butt of too many jokes and, you know, the office that I can't even bear to watch. It makes me so angry. <laughs> but the bigger issue is that they've been completely underinvested in. I think there's this mentality that once you hit a certain level of experience, you've got everything you need. Your toolkit is perfect. You should just be able to run with this for the rest of your life. It's a kind of a set and forget attitude. And that for me has been really troublesome because the work that I've done in some of the large organizations that I've been chief of talent for, I've really seen the difference between those mid-level leaders who are invested in and who are engaged and who have the ability to have a high impact versus those who aren't. And it's less about how the individual feels, and there's a big deal going on there, but it's actually more about the risk it puts the organization at. Mm. There is loads of anecdotal and researched evidence that proves that when your mid-level leaders are on point, your transformations succeed. And when they're not, they don't. It's a billion dollar difference right across any industry and any country to have an engaged, high-performing middle management cohort. And yet we still invest less than 10% of our overall budget in middle managers. So for me, this disconnect is, again, you know, super illogical. We've wrapped it around with this terrible branding that middle managers are paper pushers and there to be joked about. And for me, the, the focus on separating high-impact middle managers from those of the old days has been a real mission. And that's the work, right, for me. It's the creation of this B-suite, which is a group of middle managers who operate at an outsized impact level. Mm. And that's the kind of middle managers that we all want. So my mission is to help develop. Yeah, I love this. And, you know, I, um, people have seen this many times where someone may go to university or spends time doing uh, an apprentice or they spend years honing a skill and something come really, really good at, get tapped on the shoulder and said, by the way, uh, on Monday, you're leading a team of 10. <laughs> go for gold. And then they either, you know, you get the probably the 10% that will naturally thrive. You get the, you know, pro probably most of the rest who are kind of struggle in the middle and you get those that really like bomb. And then the person who appointed them or, or people above go, they blame that person and fire them. It's like, well, hang on. <laughs> you decided someone was ready without them actually being ready for something that is quite different to what they've always done. And we can, we quite often can get misguided in our thoughts and our perceptions by someone being really talented at something. And we kind of presume that, that it will continue into other areas without realizing that that person has very little competence um, or experience or even um, guidance in what they're about to do next. And that happens a lot with people going into people management roles for the first time and middle management roles. And so it, it it's good to see we're seeing a lot more emerging leader type programs or manager type programs happening in the talk coming. Because as you say, it, it is a huge risk for a business. And when you look at risk profiles of the business, I can guarantee that most wouldn't even think of their middle managers being on a risk profile to even start with, let alone be near the top. And I would yeah. imagine a lot of companies, it would be one of their higher risks um, in, their, in their profile. It certainly is. It certainly is. There's a, a differential 
gosh, there's, there's so many statistics that talk about the lever that is a middle manager to burnout, to engagement, to um, profit. Um, so, you know, organizations are really missing a trick if they neglect their middle management group. And a lot of them are. But what's been interesting, because, you know, I've been on my soapbox for this is my fifth year now working wholly and solely in this space. And we are starting to see the sentiment shift. We are starting to hear the narrative change, which is really delighting. What we're seeing is that it's actually coming from board level, which to me was a bit of a surprise, mm -hmm. but the boards are beginning to spot that the succession plan into the C-suite is getting poorer and poorer and patchier and patchier. Now, historically, and we know it, you know, here in Australia, only 13% of corporations have any confidence in their succession plan whatsoever. Mm. That's very poor. It's a big risk, and we all know it. And when we look at succession planning on the risk on the risk register, it's always on the risk register. What the boards are beginning to now identify is that we can't rely on recruitment as we always have. We've always said, "Don't worry, we've got a global search for that one." Um, you know, that's not really netting us the results that we need. So we are going to have to start looking in our own backyard, and we are going to have to start readying these mid-level leaders for C-suite positions in the future. And the gap between a middle manager and a C-suite executive is enormous. Mm. Uh, in fact, there's studies around that show it's been growing and growing. So the ability for somebody to simply step up and step across has dwindled. We're actually losing ground on this and we've got to reverse that or we've got a leadership crisis. It's, it's such a tricky space as well. When I think about companies that have a matrix management a little bit more stronger sense of matrix management, which can't be helped when you get global and have regions and, and, and lots of silos. There's always going to be a level of matrix where you're reporting to different people. But the more you are, you know, say you're in a functional line of marketing, but uh, someone now needs to work on a project with other areas of, and someone else is leading that. Now that person has two bosses in a way or two managers in a way that poor manager is now trying to figure out the pressure they have from the C-suite plus trying to figure out how much pressure they can put on that poor person that's being squeezed by two managers uh, on decisions on what is priority right now and, and then being squeezed up by everyone else uh, that they're also working with. It, it is a highly challenging place to be in the middle of the sandwich, so to speak. You're not wrong. <laughs> and so the skill set that is required in that space, a lot of the skills you will learn or that need to be developed are, are really crucial for a CEO as well. So when you think about not just only developing the managers for or that B-suite for their actual role requirement, it is also tick not ticking the box, shouldn't say that. It is also helping them in regards to succession planning for C-suite level uh, roles in the future. Yeah, it absolutely is, Craig. So, you know, middle managers have always been the meat in the sandwich. They've always been squeezed between conflicting agendas and, you know, diametrically opposing forces. You know, what the executive wants versus what the workforce want are never going to match up. And that tension is good and it's okay. Mm. The, the fulcrum, the translation point between those two opposing forces is the poor old middle manager, right? So they're kind of used to this being pulled apart and crushed in between you know, large opposing forces. But you're right. It's become more complex. It's become more interdependent. So what used to be 
the force of your leader versus your team is now also the force of your peers and their leader and their team. So you're multiplying this pressure and this complexity all the time. So it's no surprise, and it won't be any surprise to you, that over 60% of the programs that we run are really focused on this concept of deliberate influence. Mm. You know, how do I paint the picture? How do I translate? How do I engage motivation? How do I get people to stay with me when it gets difficult? How do I educate and influence upwards? Because there's no way they're going to know that where they're going is utterly unachievable. And it is my job to translate their strategy into action. So how do I position myself without risk to my career to go upstairs and say, hey, guys, this is stupid. You know, what's the language I need to use? What's the? How do I navigate the politics to get myself upstairs to have the conversation in a way that generates the right conversation, doesn't generate a please leave conversation? Yeah, 100%. It is, it is, uh, it is a challenge, but it's, it's also achievable as well. I, I think the more people like yourself that can be in there working in these spaces, the better off companies are going to be and, and we will be able to get to more manageable uh, workplaces where, where the manager is not the weak link, um, not by default, but by, um, by design in a way. It is. It's it's a structural anomaly and it's not going to go away. But rather than see it as a problem, which is this third party, which is the middle manager that isn't an executive or a worker, rather than see that as a problem, I actually see it as a massive advantage. It's just that we've never really defined that third party. Mm. They've always had this ambiguous grey area in an organisation. I think now we need to kind of own that space and hold it with some definition and really understand what we can drive from the middle and be accountable for driving the change from the middle. So I think empowering middle managers to really own their space is something that organizations will really benefit from. And we're certainly seeing it through the cohorts that we work with where the promotion rate has tripled. Mm. You know, Very suddenly they have a promotable middle management group Whereas the reason they came to us in the first place was because they thought they definitely didn't. Yeah. Now, in 2020, I'm not sure if you were writing this before the the pandemic came along or, or whether it was sparked by it, but you wrote a book around impact. And I love, you know, this book is for those middle managers and their ability to influence um, in, in their role. And I, I really, I think it's a fascinating book. But I love three things in here. One is how to control the pace, how to use the space and how to make the case. I think it's, it's three really important key things. So can you take us through a little bit about firstly, uh, the book and then those three areas? Yeah, so the book is is a really handy, practical kind of handbook. It's not a highly theoretical tome. It's deliberately light and just packed with practical tips and techniques. So I've had some wonderful feedback about how useful it is and how people are actually still thumbing through it a couple of years later, which obviously makes any author delighted. Um, The the spaces that we researched on the programs that we run that really make the difference to mid-level leaders are exactly the ones that you've called out. So controlling the pace of work, you know, mid-level leaders are at the center of a relentless firestorm of stuff. And it is actually never going to get better. It's only going to get worse. There is no evidence 
that has ever said we're going to go back to normal. So for, for mid-level leaders who really grasp that, it's a little bit depressing. So the first thing we really need to do is pull the lever of why is work so chaotic? Why is it so relentless? And what agency do I have to actually control the pace of work around me and my team mm. before it crushes us? So that's the first place we always start. And it is remarkable how much more power and autonomy we have in that space than we give ourselves credit for as middle managers. We often think there's nothing we can do. And the work that we do has proven time and time again, there is a mountain that we can do. We just haven't done it. So the second place that we look at then is holding the space, right? So it's really that the piece that we just talked about. It's that definition. It's those boundaries. It's understanding what is your job because the middle manager's job is so ambiguous. So redefining it for yourself and then holding that line for yourself. And it really changes the game in terms of the value proposition that you bring because when your value is undefined and ambiguous, you don't feel very valuable. Mm. But when you define it and you project it, suddenly your value increases because everybody else goes, oh, yeah, that's what they're good for. You're right. Without them, this would fail. So really starting to own that space and being a lot more strategic about how we think and how we position and how we describe the role that we play becomes a really essential springboard for then being able to influence everything around you. And that's what we incorporate into the make the case bucket or, or pillar, which is really how do we motivate our team for greater performance? How do we negotiate with our peers in a way that keeps friends but influences people? How do we manage up without sucking up, you know? Um, and how do we project outwards? How do we manage our reputation? Because once you are a mid-level leader, like it or not, people are looking. Mm. So what is it that you want them to see? And a lot of leaders have never defined that. I like that. Really, really simple, really clear, easy to understand. You can obviously check out a lot more in you know, by grabbing that book. It's called Impact, uh, which I really, really like. So I like the insights there. In, in regards to where you see the world right now, we have obviously been disrupted in many ways in recent times in regards to how we work, where we work, uh, the way we work in a way um, in regards to what's uh, a lot of talk right now around technology and how that's going to be used. In a perfect world going forward, how would you like to see companies utilize things like artificial intelligence and technology versus the human? Yes, cracking question. Ah, the chat GPT debate. Okay. Um, so number one, I don't believe that you can ban people from doing anything because all that does is drive inevitable behavior underground. So if you want to have any control whatsoever, you need to make sure that you see everything that's happening. So I think there's a lot of organizations making some real mistakes by driving AI into the black market right now by simply refusing to have it in the organization at all. Um, so that's the first thing. And, you know, you, you know that with human behavior, we can't bear to be told what to do. So we're always going to rebel. So we need to avoid the rebellious moment. Um, number two, I do share concerns that we haven't governed it. We haven't governed its evolution or its use sufficiently. And until we do that, we are letting loose something that's incredibly powerful to be used for good or evil. Mm. That's the bit that worries me. Not the power of the AI. I'm not worried about that. I'm concerned about the unrestricted use of it. Um, 
So that's an area that I think is, you know, we need to really accelerate our policies around the use of AI. But, you know, am I am I scared of it? No, I, I actually use ChatGPT. I was one of the really early adopters um, a year and a bit ago. Uh, well, not really early. I'm sure there's a million people ahead of me, but, you know, none of my friends had ever heard of it. Um, so I like it as a research tool. Mm. It simply helps me with the, the work that I do, the articles that I'm researching, you know, interviews like this one, Craig, where I think I really want to know what's the most recent thinking about X, or I really want to craft a few points that are a little bit fresher. You know, I hate repeating myself. Um, Perhaps I want a fresher take on something or a more controversial take on something. So I use my chat as a almost like a sounding board, like a writing buddy mm. uh, who comes up with some often very stupid ideas. But I'll I'll take one or two little nuggets and I'll go, okay, I can I can do something with that and take it from there. So I find it very helpful when I'm a little bit low on energy and lacking inspiration. I find it very helpful when I need to fast track some research. So it's got its uses, but it can never have my voice and it will never have an original thought in its head. That's not what it's designed for. So I'm not worried it's going to replace me or anyone like me. I, I'm hoping that, and those industries will know who they are, that love to use artificial intelligence and chatbots um, for customer service. I hope that is part of the regulation and it's banned that AI cannot and chatbots cannot be used for anything to do with customer service. Um, and that we can replace all those chatbots with human beings um, and, and actually get rid of all the mundane other crap that we have to do in work and, and you can do technology as much as you like on it. But let's make the human interactions human. Let's not try and make them artificial with humans because I don't think it's not working at the moment. And I don't know if I will in my lifetime, and that's a big statement, isn't it? I don't know if in my lifetime I'll ever be able to see where a artificial intelligence will really be able to connect with a human being. I'm not sure. It's a big not statement. Not at the level. Yeah, I, it's look, a big I'm, statement, isn't it? It is a big statement. And it would be it would be nice to have really clear channels, you know, where if you're on a, a chat, you know it's a chat bot, but I'd like it to be a bloody good one, right? At the moment, they're just awful. Yeah. And you'd like to be able to switch seamlessly across to speaking to a human which again is really awful and not possible at the moment. So at the moment we're trapped in a really horrible relationship with artificial intelligence in our day-to-day -day lives that I think could be improved massively. You know, humans will always be much smarter, much better problem solvers. Mm. Um, I say always. Mm. Okay. At this point in the game, we are much better problem solvers because we have that nuance and that ability to read people in a way that technology doesn't at the moment. So for as long as we keep that edge, I'd like to see us dealing with the more difficult things, the more complicated things, the mm. more sensitive things, um, instead of the boring things like I've lost my password or, you know, where's the policy on X? I mean, really, if you work in a call centre, surely you'd prefer a robot to answer those questions, but not the good questions, not the yeah. difficult where you add value. Yeah, my encouragement to you, actually, and on the day of this recording, we will release a great interview with John Yo. John Yo is the curator of TEDx Melbourne, uh, and we talked quite deep in in the conversation around the advent of artificial and human intelligence coming together, and 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 even more other technologies as well. Is it's a great opportunity for us to actually rethink what a, what being human is. 
and how we make decisions, right? Our kind of the, the social framework of how we've made decisions for many, many years could be at a point where we can actually rethink that potentially because of what we're doing with technology. And I thought it was fascinating and it made me think quite differently, uh, quite different based on that conversation. So maybe something to check out if you, if you have some time, it's a great conversation. Sounds brilliant. It sounds brilliant. And it's all new, right? So everyone's opinion counts. And ultimately, we can collectively shape where it goes if we're proactive about it, we're deliberate about it. Yeah. It's still fascinating for me that it took 60 years since the first artificial intelligence came out to actually became common talk in everyday I know it's remarkable, <laughs> everyday conversation. It? 60 years. I know. We've, we've sent things to Mars and back before we've worked that out. I can remember the very first... Um, well, when, when my father had a computer that spoke and it told me off, I remember crying. That's how young I was. So it's been around for a long time. Yeah. Shocking. You're quite right. We, we just haven't, I think, perhaps been that interested in it before. Mm. Now, we all know smart people have great answers, uh, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, the last time I did something for the first time. Actually, you know, that, that's a great one. I love that question because it really talks to evolution. And I would love to think that I'd have an answer for you every year of my adult life. Um, and this time I have an answer that's this month. So um, this month I did a 45K hike in one day for charity, having never done a hike ever in my life. Um, so that was a first and I loved it and hated it in equal measure. Um, And I've also launched a digital business for the first time in my entire life. So yes, good question. And thank God you asked it this month instead of next month, because I would have had nothing for you. (laughs) Beautiful. What is the one question you would love to solve? Ah, that is a good one. I would love to solve the rising anxiety that the human race is experiencing. Mm. I would love to. I would love to have a magic wand for that um, because it's, well, because we've all got it. We've all got it for different reasons, you know, economy, war, health, whatever it is. Um, and I think it's eating away at the quality of life. And if we're not having a life that is something we enjoy, I think that's probably an existential crisis much more quickly than AI could ever be. So that's what I'd like to fix. Yeah, if the technology could fix that, you'd be making a lot of money right now, (laughs) I reckon, a lot of money. Uh, For you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you? So this is a really difficult question. I think different people have different answers at different points in their life you know, depending on what their situation is or where they are in their career. So so I don't think there is one answer. I think if there was people like you and I probably wouldn't have a job. Um, so for me, at this moment in my career, a great leader is somebody who simplifies things, you know, makes what seems impossible feel possible. Somebody who reassures you because it's the nature of your role to take big risks. You will feel, You will feel the fear and you've got to do it anyway. Um, And somebody who inspires you, who keeps reminding you to just keep lifting your head and looking ahead and reminding yourself where you're going, what the bigger picture looks like. So for me, I think a leader that really very clearly 
lives those behaviours would be a leader that would make leading at the moment, which is very, very difficult, feel somewhat joyous again. Mm, Very good. I like that. Rebecca, it's been a fascinating conversation and we could continue on for for a few more hours, I'm sure. I know I could, I don't know about you, but I definitely (laughs) can continue the conversation. Uh, How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Really, really easy. Go straight to the website. So www.boldhr.com and have an explore and connect with me via that. Beautiful. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I have loved the conversation that started off talking about your different cultural experiences as you left London and, and went through different continents, not just countries, continents, and made your way to Australia. And, and along the way, delved into, you know, what are the commonalities of leaders? What are the, what are the challenges we're facing? Uh, the importance of the middle manager, that B-suite, and why we need to spend more time in not only uh, from a financial perspective in regards to things like learning and development, but also human time and actually mentoring, coaching them and guiding them more effectively in what is one of the most challenging spots in an organization in the middle uh, to, to looking at things like where is the future going and, and you know, what would be nice to see or, or what changes could we make. And so I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been an absolute delight and I look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. So thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Craig. I've loved it. Brilliant day. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.